you do the private execution on your device and then you send it to the sequencer and the sequencer will take care of all the public stuff. What happens when the sequencer does all of the public stuff, it can't webhook back to your phone and say, this happened as a result of executing your public function and I do this because then you've linked the two together completely. But your public function can create commitments and you can spend those commitments privately. GM, GM, everyone. My name is Tagachi, the host of Scraping Bits, and today I'm with a person named Madaya. How's it going? Hey, guys. How's it going? Nice to be on here. Nice to be on this side of the chair, I guess. <laughs> yeah, nice to have you on from uh, from the Hofta score to now friends. Yeah, fucking Quite a journey, eh? Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe just for some background, introduce yourself. Who are you and, and what do you do? Yeah, my name's Madaya. I... Uh, work at Aztec. Currently, I'm working on the, the team focusing on building the node. Uh, sometimes I stretch myself into Noir, which is a domain-specific language for writing ZK circuits. Um, I also spent some time doing some open source stuff, uh, mainly like Huff. So I currently maintain Huff RS. Not a whole lot, but I do enough. <laughs> and yeah, so my my whole path has kind of just been getting nerd sniped into Huff and then getting nerd sniped into ZK and then I'm here and I have a job and yeah, that's, that's what's happened. Nice. So, so what were you doing before basically Aztec and this Huff stuff? Yeah. So, well, I suppose it makes sense to talk about like how I got into Web3 in the first place. So I, mm-hmm. I had a friend who was very, very, well, he, he introduced me to this stuff. So it was DeFi Summer. And he was kind of showing me all this kind of yield farming stuff. And I was like, well, this is pretty weird and interesting. Uh, Sign me up. Um, So I did a lot of research about it and then found myself, I was currently at the time in my last year of university or just going into. So I found myself a professor who knew a decent amount about blockchain and asked him like if I could do a thesis project with him, if we could kind of dive into DeFi or any kind of open questions there are in blockchain. Mm. Well, specifically Ethereum, because that's what I've been spending a lot of my time on. So I ended up working with him on some kind of cryptography-based stuff, like kind of social recovery wallets before they became a thing. It's kind of what we worked on. But my friend who introduced me to the whole DeFi sphere started working on Navbots for his thesis. So he was working on like triangular arbitrage. And this was like at the beginning of DeFi summer. So I spent a lot of my time with him just kind of diving down that rabbit hole. And then I got very interested in like this kind Mm. of Ethereum infrastructure in general. So then whenever I finished uni, myself and him and some random person we met in the Flashballs Discord who we'd never met before. And (laughs) we moved to London together and started like a a a node company. Oh, wow. okay. And kind of the whole the whole idea was that we wanted to have some kind of like Mevaware infrastructure for validators. But then obviously like Mevboost came out and that was literally a lot better than what we'd been working on. So we kind of packed up the shop there. And then I started oh. just kind of doing a little bit of side projects here and there, just kind of working on whatever we could. And then that's when I spent a lot of time on Huff. And it was actually at that first company where I met like a mentor who introduced me to Yule because mm-hmm. he'd, he'd been writing a lot of nice bots. And yeah, that's kind of where I got nerd sniped into the whole optimizing EVM contracts and mm-hmm. that world. And then that's how I ended up uh, 
doing the Huff stuff and then by extension, the Aztec stuff. Yeah. So th- did they like reach out when they saw you doing Huff stuff or did you kind of like reach so, out? So no, um, it actually, it came through what, what happened with the Huff stuff is that I applied for the Paradigm Fellowship and then got lucky and got accepted into that. And then they introduced me to Aztec. But then... What was that like? That was good fun. Yeah, it was was just kind of like just a week of just brainstorming, really. Uh, Just like workshops and just hanging out, talking about stuff. Like you imagine just what a general conference vibe is like in general or like a hacker house kind of thing. And we just kind of discussed like what could you build, what should you build. Right, right, right. It, it was interesting. It was really fun. And then, yeah, so I did that. And then they kind of introduced me to the Aztec people. But I um, I kind of, in my own time, did a hackathon project where I was like, oh, you could do governance, uh, like private governance mm-hmm. through the, like, the Aztec Connect product. And so I built that and then did it at a hackathon. And then they reached out that way mm-hmm. as well. So I kind of had, I went formally through the hiring process and then yep. did the hackathon under like this pseudonym and then they reached out to my pseudonym and then I was like, oh yeah, we're the same person. <laughs> <laughs> that was convenient. Oh, okay. And you didn't know anything about like ZK before joining this. You only really knew about like no development so, because of the MEV stuff. Not, not exactly. So I actually, I came across ZK for the first time whenever I was doing my thesis. So oh, okay. me and my professor kind of discussed it briefly as like a possible solution to what we were trying to do, just like explore it. But then we both came to the conclusion that like it was a bit, bit too deep for where we were at at the time. Right. Um, but like across that, we, we discussed like, that was when I first came across like Plonk and Zach Williamson. Oh, right. Yeah, the creator. Yeah. So then whenever I started, like I saw Huff again, I was like, oh shit, this is the same guy. What the fuck? because you know they're like completely different veins of the industry and I was like for me he's popped up again Um, and it was actually at that point when I started doing a lot of like I started upskilling again in cryptography Um, I did a lot of like I did the the crypto 101 shit when I was doing my thesis Mm. but I kind of Mm -hmm. restudied all that and then started kind of um, looking into like how does snarks work so I'd already kind of done a lot of that stuff. And I'd, I'd written yeah. a lot of Circom and stuff before I joined Aztec. But you didn't do like, I guess, validators, did you? You just did kind of like nodes. No, we were, we were doing validator infrastructure. Oh, you were yeah. as well? Oh, okay. And that was good fun. Like, I really enjoyed that. That company was great because it was, it was like a, there was like six or seven of us and we were just hacking on stuff. Did you ever like sell it or was it just kind of? So we had stuff in production, but we never like sold it or anything. It was like pretty small scale we had like one investor whose money we put into stuff but it was never like that big i guess what 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 happened to the investor's money (laughs) what happened to the investor's money like do you end up giving it back we did we did a lot of other like mercenary work where we got paid enough that we like covered our costs oh okay because i've never received money from a startup and i'm sure some other people (laughs) have So like, if you get, you know, invest some money and then it doesn't work out, what happens? <laughs> well, I just, yeah, what usually happens is it's just their loss, but we ended up on pretty oh, good no. terms where we, we had enough, we'd earned enough money from just doing stuff that there was no real deficit whenever we closed up. Got you, got you. Yeah, I guess you can basically just like leave and be like, oh, we lost it. Yeah. 
literally that's kind of it's like a sunk cost like you, they take on that risk i guess when do you even like decide to take on investor money as well like what, at what point are you like okay i need money the, the very beginning <laughs> Oh, really? Well, I guess you have to cover like costs yeah. for so like, if you want to hire people or any of this stuff, you need you need to raise some funds. Mm. And we were lucky this was for, for most of us, it was just from like friends and family of the guy um, oh, that, we met, that we moved to London for. Um, mm -hmm. So it was like he had some pretty rich friends who kind of funded the whole thing. Well, that's fun. It was, <laughs> it was a good gig. Yeah, yeah. So how was the transition getting into Aztec then? Um, like how did it really start the process of like kind of getting hired? Yeah, it was a, a lot of interviews, I guess. I think there were six in the end. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah, okay. just like, but the, the hiring process isn't, isn't that daunting anymore. Uh, it was a bit more whenever I joined, but it was just like classic chat, coding interview, um, mm. and then Solidity, coding interview, architecture interview, presentation on something that you're interested in, uh, stuff like that. Got you. And, and what really is a ZK virtual machine or I guess like Aztec's equivalent. Okay. Hard questions. So what, <laughs> you know, what, what Aztec is building right now is like a, a private, a private and public state roll up. So the, the whole idea is that you have two different execution environments. So you have one which operates like solely over private state and that will be, that has like a UTXO model for representing state updates. And then you have also attached to it is the public state model. And that's just right. like your classic accounts on Ethereum. So you have kind of two environments that weave into one and they can orchestrate with each other. And the reason why there are two, um, just to like take it back to the basics, if, mm. if you imagine you have an account on Ethereum and it sits in an ERC-20 contract somewhere and it has a balance of like, 20 ETH or whatever, yeah. or like 20 tokens. If you, in any transaction later on, update that same state, then you can link the two transactions together, even if you don't know who the sender is. So if you have an account-based model, you can pretty easily tie transactions together. And that is why you need this kind of UTXO model. So if you just kind of take the approach where I'm just not going to update the same piece of state twice. If I have a new state, I'm going to create a new state. And I'm going to then have some way of telling the people who know about that state that it's been changed or updated by having this thing that we call nullifiers. So every right. state... And that's how it is. Yeah. So the, it's like this, this was pioneered by Zcash. And the, the whole idea is if you don't want to link state together, just, just don't update it. If you want to make sure that okay. you can't double spend the same state, you just... If you want to spend the state, you create a nullifier. And the way a nullifier is created is usually like a hash of the information plus like some deterministic secret, like maybe it's the account's private key or something. Okay. So that the next time you try and spend it, you can see that, that this, this nullifier already exists in the tree. But unless you know this private key, you won't know which nullifier links to which piece of committed state in the first place. So you don't actually leak anything to anyone else. And that's kind of how it works mm. in a way. It's the same way Tornado works. It's, yeah, it's kind of the, the model we've fallen into. Yeah, it's basically like a blockchain using a Tornado kind of a protocol, I guess. I mean, uh, yeah, sort of. I don't want to say that. It's just way. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's not. It's like it, you can have private state of anything. So it doesn't have to be like 
it's right. being transferred, it can be literally anything. And the way that is private is because it doesn't update yeah. both states. Because you can't reliably link transactions together. Got you. And, and I guess how do you, they can't look in like the node and do anything. It's no, because if, if you, if you look at the commitments that are being created and added they're all of them are just hashes. So right. what actually happens is like what gets stored in the state trees are just commitments to values. And then you through either an external channel can communicate like the pre-image of this commitment to somebody else. So like, let's say that the value I've sent is like 100 die and yeah. I've sent it to like address zero XA. Then mm -hmm. I can encrypt that piece of information and broadcast it with my transaction. And then the person who's meant to receive that information can decrypt it. Or I can just like not emit anything. I can just like text the person and say, I've sent you this amount of money. Here's how you can create mm. the, the commitment so you can spend it. When you say broadcast together, wouldn't, so wouldn't they both be broadcasted publicly then? Yeah, so, but it's, it's an encrypted piece of information. Oh, oh, oh gotcha, gotcha. So you don't actually see what has been broadcasted. Yep. And then this this is what basically allows anonymity within public block, blockchains. Yeah. So everything's everything's encrypted. Yeah, yeah. So you have a public mempool and basically a private one as yeah. well. And the reason behind that is if you look at kind of any useful application in DeFi, you you don't you, you well you need like something that's public to kind of verify state. So like imagine yeah. you have like a, de a pair on a on a dex. Let's say it's like ETH and DAI. Um, you you need to know that there's liquidity in that pool. You need to know that what the price is of, at that point in time. Um, mm -hmm. Those are public state. So like if everything was private, like you couldn't reliably trade into that pair and know that you're not going to slip massively. Or yeah. I don't even know if you could in the first place. Like you you need something public to kind of you, you need to leak some information to make an app usable. Yeah. And the whole idea of SX3 is that you can you can do that and you can still have parts mm -hmm. of it private. I wonder, since there's two different mempools, I it's, wonder if there's MEV on, on both mempools. <laughs> so it's it's actually technically one. So okay. all transactions, like the, the, what it looks like from, from the outside world is you have the private state actually, like the private part of the transaction actually happens on a user's device. So there's no mempool for that whatsoever. So if I have state, I want to update it and mm. it's private state. So like only I know about it. And then I can just create proofs of the transactions that I want to make like on my local device and then send those. It's only if I want to update public state that those transactions need to be ordered because you've raised conditions over like what public state you're actually interacting with. So like, let's say that for private state, like I'm not going to be spending somebody else's tokens. I'm not going to be spending a group of tokens. I'm just going to be spending mine. But right. if it's public state, then like maybe I'm changing weights in a pool that multiple people can change, or maybe I'm trading in and out of token pairs or whatever. So mm -hmm. what you actually do is you, you execute one part of the transaction on your device you then yep. send with it a transaction payload for like, if you want to include a public transaction after that, you can just, you can submit them together and have like the mining of your private transaction depend on the public transactions output. Or okay. you can just like submit a private transaction where it, it'll just get included. You bid for it if, as you want. Or you can submit a public one where people can see what's going to happen. 
So like it's they all go through the same mempool, but some have different outcomes. Right. So if I want to do a, a private transfer to you, yeah, I could do this as like an encrypted transaction, right? Uh, yeah. So you just send you send one proof to the network, and that's what you send. right. Oh, so it's just sending the proof, and that's yeah. It. The proof and the and like new commitments or like whatever nullifiers you've created, and then they just get sequenced. Then can you see, I guess, like the state of of contracts as well? The public state or private state? Private. I guess it's public. Like, let's say there's an ELC twenty yeah. balance of. Uh, that's public, right? Yeah. Let's say I, I transferred a hundred. The only thing changing is who's that, who that is going to. But wouldn't you still be able to access that through that function of checking balance of your address? Uh, so if you were trying to see the balance of somebody's address and it was in private state, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get anything back. Okay, so I'm assuming like something like an ERC twenty would be public state. Yeah, so you could have you could have a like. A, some of the contracts is happens in public, like all the minting happens publicly. Then yeah. somebody like shields those, and then Got once you. it's private, like you don't you don't know where it is. Mm. Yeah, because I'm just thinking, like, how would I guess tracing exploits work? Um, Good question. That's that's the issue. So if you have a if you have a bug in your private contracts where you can inflate like have an infinite spend bug, it's very unlikely that anyone will know. But if it is a public state, like the ERC-20... Yeah, so if if, if they withdraw it, if, if you require them to to unshield it, to do anything with it, then... Oh, okay. So it's like a, a new function kind of thing that... Well, you could you could have this. So that, like you can design it in whatever okay. way you want. But like let's say you're some kind of... Like you say you're USDC... And you're mm-hmm. pretty strict in, in the rules of using your token. You yeah. would probably have some kind of unshield before you bridge it kind of thing. And in that case, then maybe you would see it. When it comes into public state, you would see it. But anything that happens in private is private. So is this private and public kind of shielding done at like the contract level or the transaction level, I guess? So it's, it's all contract, so it's all programmable. You can... You okay, so it's like a, a new opcode, I guess. <laughs> Uh, yeah, for sure. Okay. Hmm, interesting. And I guess why would someone want to make something private if it's, a, let's say, a Uniswap fork, but they want to make it, you know, a, a private dark pool kind of thing? Why would someone want to do private if there's the potential of getting hacked and nobody knowing? Uh, maybe somebody needs that use case. Well, if you want if you want privacy through your trades, like there's a couple of ways you could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you could have like the way ASIC Connect works currently. Um, whenever you do like a Uniswap swap, all the amounts are public, but who is performing okay. them is private, and the anonymity set of like who it could be is large enough that you get pretty good privacy. Mm-hmm. So okay. it's it's really like it's it's trade offs. So you you can design in whatever in whatever way you want. So you can be more granular, or have it in that kind of design where amounts are public, but like who's doing it mm-hmm. isn't, and all of this kind of stuff. And it's really it's it's the world's your oyster. You can program whatever you want. Interesting. Yeah, it's going to be a very interesting space in the future. <laughs> yeah, it's it, the the design space is massive. We've we've got some example contracts in our. Uh, site packages repo if you want to look they're pretty oh, yeah. pretty rough cut like this the noir syntax isn't there but there's like working examples of a lot of this stuff 
Mm -hmm. And I wonder what the auditing kind of space will look like in in the ZKVM space. Yeah, it's it's going to be pretty fascinating. Um, yeah. So I mean, like auditing circuits in general, like the talent pool for it is pretty small right now. Um, mm. Especially for like slight, like a lower level languages like Circom. Um, and what 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 is a circuit though? Okay, so oh, this could be ten episodes <laughs> in itself. TLDR. <laughs> so TLDR. So a, a circuit is really just a program, but defined in. Like the, I'll do. I'll make a big generalization here, but it's it's kind of a program that's defined as only uh, pluses or multiplications. Okay. So it's called a circuit because if you look at it topologically, or like whenever this stuff was first being designed, it, it's all kind of designed as like fan two in one out, um, like arithmetic circuits, and they, they it generally looks like a circuit on on paper. But nowadays, a lot okay. of that is abstracted away. Um, gotcha. So all, all it is is like something that constrains what values can be inputs to a function and what values can be outputs. And it also constrains all of the intermediate values as well. So if you can imagine like a function as just like a line, so depending mm -hmm. on like what, the number of variables you have to a function, it it's just a line through space that are all the possible things that satisfy that function. And um, circuit is just kind of a way of representing that that's provable. Okay, so it's like the verifier kind of thing for... So, yeah, you can you can prove a circuit and you can like have a satisfying witness to a circuit and then have a verifier that will accept that. But okay. like... I mean, all, all these abstractions don't matter too much. Like a circuit is really just a program with a set of rules that you want to constrain. So like, let's say I want to constrain that my circuit will only accept outputs where input one plus input two equal input three, then right. I can create kind of a circuit that will accept all of those. So a circuit's like a function, right? Or it's is just it a function. A kind yeah. of, and it's specific to each contract or is it a global thing it'll be specific to each contract so you can you okay. can write circuits like normal code by using noir so you just write it like it's a normal program like a solidity program or a rust program or right. whatever you fancy and then behind the scenes it will turn this into some kind of into mathematical constraints okay. and then but those constraints just represent the circuit that you the, the program that you've defined right okay cool so then people will have to learn about these circuits or is it, is it like hard to learn do you reckon or it's, it's not really so like at a surface level the devx with noir is great so like you can just write it like it's normal code if you want to optimize it then you probably have to go down the rabbit hole a little bit because right. there's there's something we're introducing to noir in the next update which is called unconstrained functions so you can kind of i'll, I'll paint the picture a little bit so right now when you're creating circuits you, I mean, you can only use uh, additions and multiplications like behind the scenes or else like there's custom gates and all this kind of stuff, but we'll forget about that for the time. Right. Um, if you imagine like how do you perform a division using only additions and multiplications, like you, that's extremely expensive. Yeah. What you would actually do is like provide something that's called a witness, like provide a witness value externally, which is like the result of that division. 
and then mm. you can just verify that the inverse is true. So like, let's say I want to prove that A divided by B equals C. What yep. I can do instead is prove that like C times B equals A. Okay. And then I can do that in like one or two constraints rather than having to perform that multiplication. It turns, well, rather than having to perform the division actually. So it turns out that you can you can shave a lot of you can enhance the performance of your circuits a lot by reducing the constraints by like looking at things that have this relationship and kind of optimizing what the witness values you end up using. And mm, this this okay. is like really interesting because you get into the point. This is where like lookup tables come in. You right. can like massively increase performance for certain things. So like anything that's non-native and difficult to do inside like the field that you're working in or Mm-hmm. You you will end up swapping this over to being some kind of lookup of something you've pre-computed, and then you can constrain this pre-computed table using something like Ultraplunk or like Plookup or whatever, like some kind of proving system that lets you make these lookup arguments. Hmm. Yeah, you hear prover a lot when you talk about zk, and there's so many like new zk startups as well. You have Polygon. Yeah. Uh, you got Scroll, Aztec. You know, so many. So I, I guess it's like a race to become the Ethereum of ZK. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Right now. <laughs> well, so, there's a couple of different races taking place, right? So there's like the the people doing it for scaling, and then there's people who want to kind of have base layer privacy. So there's yeah. kind of two different races going on. Um, but yeah, they're all pretty pretty competitive. I wonder what like bridging would be like from like one ZK thing to another, anonymous bridging. <laughs> yeah, so from two like base layers which have privacy built in, I reckon yeah, you could do that where you get privacy in bridging. Mm. Um, but then you'll still have like a centralized kind of yeah, you'll, you'll, always, you'll always need a relayer and a bridge. For L2s, it's not too bad because usually your relayer is your sequencer, so you can trust them. Um, so like in the case of Aztec's design, or like if you look at any of the rollups in general, like they have this enshrined bridge. So you can send messages to some kind of some contract that or even the the like some contract that the sequencer trusts, and then it will just read events from that message and then store those messages on the other side for people to act against them or even like just perform arbitrary calls for you, which is a lot more secure than having, you know, some other party which picks up the messages, kind of signs a multi-sig and then sends it over to the other side. Yeah, I wonder what, there wouldn't be any kind of like bundling system like there is with Flashbots in ZK. I can't imagine that. So I think it can exist for... Uh, well, in our design anyway, like because we have all this public state in general, there will be mm. bidding wars like around this. So, like classical MEV will exist. Mm, okay, stuff, I think. Uh, but you wouldn't be able to see <laughs> what the who's basically sending what to what. Yeah, maybe there would just kind of be like sections of it, like, um, I guess like slices of transactions you have to kind of like yeah they'll be you know, fill in the gaps they'll be different yeah it'll be a different set of information to what we see on ethereum 9 but someone will find a way to to extract value from it i, mean, I wonder if there'll be any answer um, kind of implies that there is value to be extracted in the sequencing of transactions yeah yeah 
I, I want so will, will contracts can contracts be fully anonymous as well so yeah. you know on you you can have contracts which don't have any public functions in them at all or something that you cannot see on the blockchain at all it's just kind of the address and you can't see the bytecode yeah so oh, each, address, <laughs> each address will have stored at it like a contract tree so like there will be to make sure that like somebody is actually executing something that somebody has deployed, you have to mm. prove that the contract you're executing exists. So yeah, that's, that's something you have to do first. And the way you do that is just a Merkle tree check against the contract address to say like, because each each contract will store a Merkle tree of the functions that it, it contains. Um, but those functions right. will just be hashes. So you can't actually see the bytecode that makes them up. Like... All you get is some a verification key that allows you to prove, like to verify that this has been done correctly. So reverse engineering sounds like it wouldn't it wouldn't actually work in this environment if something was fully private. So, no. for example, MEV for for private transactions, no, but for for public ones, like yes, you absolutely could because if you want a transaction to be public, you have to publish the bytecode. Oh, even if it's just one. What do you mean, just one? Like just one public. Yeah. Like, let's say I have an MEV bot, right? Yeah. And I'm interacting with like a Uniswap clone that I guess has like at least one public function. So that means that me uh, that Uniswap clone is actually public. Just that function. The rest of it isn't. Oh, okay. Got you. Yeah. So that's that's probably another uh, difference towards like the EVM is that in in Aztec every function has its own bytecode, not an entire contract. Uh, a contract is just a way of scoping state to a set of functions. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Oh, can a public function interact with a private function? So this is this is where it gets interesting. Like, technically, you can send messages to them, but it's asynchronous. So, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> so this this is where it gets really funky. Is you can you do the private execution on your device and then you send it to right. the sequencer and the sequencer yeah. will take care of all the public stuff. What happens when the the sequencer does all of the public stuff? It can't like webhook back to your phone and say this happened as a result of executing right. your your public function. Now do this because then you've linked the two together completely. You right. you would just have you, but your public function can create commitments and you can like spend those commitments privately. This is a really interesting like area. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've not actually had to like explain it before. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff to it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's is, fun to think. It sounds like it's going to be a, a massive playground. It's fun to think about. Like there's, there's so many open questions to it as well. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So let's say I have an MEV bot, right? And I'm running a bunch of strategies <laughs> and one of them just happens to hit um, like a public transfer of an ERC-20. Yeah. Would you only see that public transfer within this, I guess, this whole sequence of, let's say they like chain different private tra- uh, private functions and then it, it in the middle of it, it has one public function, yeah. but then like the rest are private. Would you only see that public one? Yeah, the public one would have to come at the end. So every... Yeah, you can't go from public back into private, but yeah, and you can you can do as many public like private function calls as you want before you go public. And what's great, well, there there isn't a really limit because it's what actually happens under the hood is that you prove each of these functions and then you recursively compress it down into one little proof. So you send one proof of like what could have been 
an arbitrary number of function calls to right. the network. So I imagine like in hacks, it would just be like, <laughs> you, you would just see like one public function, which is just like the public bytecode. And it's just like, all the money's moved. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, yeah, that, the possibility that that could happen is like, gives me gray hair. Like that's, that's yeah. but I mean, the hope is that like the security tooling we build will be good enough that that won't happen or hopefully. Yeah. I wonder what the, the security tooling would be like then. If you if something is private, um, I guess like post deployment audits will be like a thing of the past unless it's all public. So well, you can unless you can publish the code always if you want to. Right. Um, I mean, the, the people don't do that though. They do like unverified contracts in Ethereum. Yeah, for unverified contracts, good luck. But at the same time, nobody can create proofs for your application unless they have your proving key, which is like created by compiling your contract, which you need the source for. I imagine someone would make like, okay, let's say I make a protocol and yeah, let's, I'm just going to keep using this Uniswap one, <laughs> but it's a private Uniswap. Um, like everything is private, but I build, I build a front end with my, I guess, prover key, right? And I already know everything in the, in the tree. Yeah. So then people will be, on, be able to interact with the private Functions. So you need to prove a key to basically know what's happening and, and the tree, right, of what's all the private functions. Te technically, sort of. To, do, technically to, to perform sort of. it, so every, <laughs> every function has a verification key that everyone knows, but that doesn't, like, that, those verification keys are just commitments to the shape of the circuit. Mm -hmm. So they don't actually really verify you can look at them as like hash functions. They don't really reveal that much about what it's actually doing. So you publish all of those. You have to publish those. Oh, okay. So for anyone to interact with a private function, they would... They need the proving key to create a proof to interact with the function. But the the block, like um, Aztec will need, always need the verification key to be able to verify that those proofs are valid. So that's why you have to publish it. So you have to publish a verification key. You only have to publish the proving key to people that you want to be able to create proofs for your app, which doesn't have to be everyone. It can just be like right. you and your friend. If it's like a, what if you just have like, channel between you two. Okay, what if you just, can, can multiple people use the same proving key? Is that what's yeah. called, proving yeah. key? Yeah, so a proving key is just like, you, you can think of a, a proving key is, is everything that you need to create a proof for a function. Got you, so we can have just one for everybody, right? Um. I think that maybe the, maybe calling it a key is like the wrong way to describe it. Okay, <laughs> it's literally just source code. You can think of it as just the source code. Oh, okay. So, code, well, if you compile the source code, you'll get the proving key, which will allow you to create proofs. But that key isn't like a key that's unique. It's not like a private key or anything. It's literally just okay. It's just bytecode, basically. Yeah, it's just bytecode, really. Okay, so we can just put this bytecode on our front end. Yeah. All right. And so nobody directly knows it unless, you know, they go through the repo and I don't know, maybe you're like scavenge through the inspect yes. on the browser. But it, theoretically, if they didn't do that or couldn't do that, then it's technically public, but private. Like they're using yeah. private so I, functions. I mean, you could have a model, like this would be a completely terrible design, but you could have okay. the, the proving key only exists in your server and you ask people to send you like inputs 
and then somebody creates the if you trust this person like they will create the proof for you but again that's terrible mm. because they can they can literally replace any of the witness values of whatever they want oh yeah like, okay. so nobody would actually don't, use don't, don't trust your prover unless the prover is yourself right so okay nobody would ever use their own private like these private functions then no well it defeats the whole point of using a snark in the first place yeah yeah okay unless, yeah. unless you, you can like distribute the source code and like have people do it themselves yeah hmm. interesting i'm really keen to kind of like dig into the reverse engineering and yeah i guess automated analysis on this stuff as well it sounds like it's going to be super complex but it's going to be fun i am I'm, I'm really excited yeah. for the, the ecosystem that pops up after this is deployed um it's going to be super super interesting yeah so if you let's say you wanted to do some like automated analysis i know that you don't do it but <laughs> since you have like the foundational knowledge of you know zk vms yeah you kind of know what needs to be done so i guess in your kind of like perspective what what would you think that needs to be done or what is, is actually possible so there's there's so many scopes to this like i mean you could you could pretty easily create something that could verify like noir code itself i mean you could just use traditional tooling that you would use to do like formal methods on um right, solidity right. in this case like existing tooling would probably work as long as you can you can create something that models the language accurately um, mm. the problem is is noir itself like even if like Noir is secure in like the the its compiler output, and its compiler output is something called a seer. Like this is this is quite a big um this is a rabbit hole, but we're gonna go down it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the the architecture of Noir is actually quite fascinating in a way. So it itself is just a front end that compiles right. to this back end that we well this IR that we call abstract circuit uh, intermediate representation. So it is kind okay. of what we think is a way that you could represent anything you want a proving system to prove. And mm. it will then interface with a proving system to turn that into constraints. So like the workflow that we use internally or like that Noir ships with by default is this, um, a Noir program compiles to this ASEER, which then compiles, gets sent to our uh, cryptography backend called Berenberg, and it turns it into constraints. Mm. So there's two points that you can prove here. Like you can formally verify that um, Noir compiles down to a seer correctly and that everything happens as you expect. And then you can, there's the other step that you'll have to verify because Noir doesn't have to target just Berenberg as its backend. Like it can, currently there's people making a Halo 2 backend for it. And, and I mean, it works. So like you can write Noir that turns into into Halo 2 circuits. But the the problem is that that step between a seer to the back end is also something you would need to verify. It's kind yeah. of a language within itself. And so this, yeah. You can you can yeah, you can verify Noir pretty easily, I think. Okay, so Noir well Noir is basically in like the, the contract, right? So you could easily do that. Yeah. But apart from that there's another step. Like you then to oh, be 100% no. sure, sorry, <laughs> the one I just described, like you have to be 100% sure that Noir is accurately turning those into gates. There's, okay. there's no flaw there because it's another flow. Just like, let's say. Um, uh, and how are you like sure of that though? We just write lots of tests and we'll have to get it formally verified at some point. Okay, right. Gotcha. Yeah. And we use it in production, so. Mm. 
So let's say you wanted to kind of reverse engineer a contract, right? Yeah. And see if that had any exploits. Because I'm people are gonna do this. Or yeah. you know, just do like white hatting. Um yeah. for the these you know, these protocols. I guess what were the steps you would have to take to do this? If it had like partial public functions, some do private I don't want to answer this question. <laughs> I do not like that aspect. <laughs> Okay, no, this is White House specifically. White House. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. Um, so, yeah, I, I, there'll be a block explorer like usual and all public functions. Okay. So this is, I mean, this is where there's another massive divergence. So public functions take place on a, Z, on a VM. So this there is a ZK VM right. for public functions and it takes in just bytecode and executes this bytecode in this massive ZK circuit that basically verifies that every single like, clock cycle of the VM is done correctly, or every step is done correctly. And this is the exact same model that like ZK VMs have, except right. they have a tougher job because they're proving a VM that wasn't really designed to be proved in that kind of way. So I mean, the exact same kind of things apply in this case. So you, you literally you would look at the bytecode like look at how that executes on like a, an ACVM simulator and then mm -hmm. look at how the output differs to what the VM circuit should be constraining or like what the bytecode thinks is constraining. Mm. And that's where the difference is. Interesting. Do you want a primer on ZKVMs in general? Yeah. <laughs> so like a ZKVM is, is, is literally just like a monolithic circuit or like a circuit that is composed of lots of like sub-circuits that are there to specifically prove behavior about a virtual machine. So like, let's say it has, let's say we have a simple virtual machine that has like five opcodes and they are add, subtract, yeah. uh, comparison operator, and mm -hmm. let's say return or something. I know that was four, but we'll, we'll stick with that. <laughs> <laughs> For example, <laughs> that makes sense. So what you would have is kind of like, like each addition constraint is pretty simple. You can imagine is it's literally like A plus B equals C. Right. The subtraction is kind of similar, like A, A inverse, like A, B inverse equals C, because you're mm -hmm. in a finite field, like if you want to subtract, you just add your inverse. And the same kind of thing for a comparison, like you can constrain them to be, you can constrain your numbers to be bits, or you can, well, I mean, comparisons are pretty difficult to do in, in ZK world in general. Like you have to do bit decomposition, do range checks, mm -hmm. and then compare them after that. Um, and then like our return function is basically just something that pushes something into a register or you imagine. And for all of these, assume we're like working on some kind of register machine. Right. Like, so it's not I stack. take two, yeah. two things out of like, say I take values out of register A and B, and then I put them into some kind of result register or something. And the bytecode defines like where all these are. You basically just mm -hmm. have to write a circuit that constrains all of this occurs correctly. So mm. I have to, if you imagine like what that would look like before it's proved is like one massive execution trace. So like you can, you can think of like having a column in a, like a, like a table, every single mm. register and every single opcode that's being executed. And then like, let's say the opcode that's being executed is add. You then have to basically say that in the next row does like does everything fit to the constraints that I expect from my VM. So like if it's an addition, like is the output register the addition of the two input registers 
at step t minus one. And mm -hmm. if you imagine if you're just writing a massive circuit to to do all of this, like that, that's essentially what a ZKVM is. Okay, and so it's massive. If, if anybody wants to like dig into this, the idea was kind of first introduced by the Starkware guy, Ben Sasson, in TinyRAM. If you just Google TinyRAM, you'll see the paper that kind of describes like the first idea of how to do this. And then if mm -hmm. you want to get into like really fun stuff, um, ZK, the ZK EVM done by um, Polygon and Polygon Zero is like really interesting. They like, created a whole new language called Pill to to Pill. Just, yeah <laughs> like polynomial ident identity language to define okay. all of the circuits. And reading through that is just like a goldmine of um, like really cool techniques. Oh, okay, alpha. Yeah, it's just really interesting. And then if you want to go even deeper and like design your own zk uh, VMs, there's actually a framework being built by Chris ETH who like created Solidity called Powder. It's actually really usable. So if somebody nice. wants to get nerd sniped and try and build a ZKVM out of out of uh, Powder, and that would be a pretty cool project. Yeah, I'm pretty interested in this because to build something like like a automated analysis tool, um, you will need to build your own VM. So yeah, well, what, what, this what sounds do you mean, like you want, for a, for an analysis tool, you need to build a VM. Well, especially for dynamic analysis, because you have to basically oh, execute yeah. what's happening. Yeah. Um, whereas static analysis, you can kind of just be like, okay, this is the opcode. Um, this is what it outputs. This is what it takes in. Gotcha. Um, but for dynamic, you actually have to execute it. So, yeah, it's, it doesn't sound as easy as EVM. <laughs> <laughs> So you basically have to build like your own circuits in it or this registry kind of thing? Um, it's kind of interesting that you say to evaluate all of this, you need to build your own VM because that's actually what Noir does behind the scenes to evaluate everything. It has this thing called uh, the ACVM, which executes um, which executes the CR opcodes to basically build what your circuit would look like. And then inside that VM, if you want to do unconstrained things, it has a VM inside the VM to then inject witnesses. Oh my God, nested VMs. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's why the unconstrained function thing is coming out is pretty interesting because it is literally like running a VM in a VM that you can kind of inject values into. Yeah, I wonder how audit firms are going to adjust to ZK. I, for, I, th th they're doing a pretty good job at it, to be honest. Like With Cairo? Is Cairo VM? I mean, ZK? Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. Okay, so people have already done it. Yeah, yeah it's like, it's not a... Um, like the general like ZKVM stuff isn't too much of an open problem. Um, right. It's the, more of like the specific privacy stuff and like just having like developers who are or even auditors that are kind of familiar with just general circuit vulnerabilities on top of logic vulnerabilities. It's just mm -hmm. going to be important to have people with that skill set or like that muscle memory to be able to identify that stuff. And the, like I mean, the, the real problem is is that there's there's not enough projects that. I mean, there's more and more by the day, but a lot of the auditors just yeah. haven't had the practice. No mm. Yeah, so there's going to be a lot of like screw ups initially, yeah. and then as it's it like, matures, obviously. Like everyone now kind of looks at reentrancy as this obvious thing in the world. Yeah. But like, I mean, everything's obvious in retrospect. And it's like you've yeah, got to course. train those muscles and like know what to look for in the first place. And usually, like, mm -hmm. we learn the lessons by things getting hacked. We just have to pray that that doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 or whatever like that. 
do a hard fork of us too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's why it's it's so important that like people use Noir now before Sex launched, mm. like people get familiar with it. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. Um, hmm. Yeah, very, very interesting. I want to get into that now. You're pilling me. Oh, man. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Um, yeah, I'm super keen for the kind of whole automated space of how that's going to work, like MEV um, yes. and just like automated analysis is going to be very interesting. So how would you get someone that's currently in Solidity EVM type deals into basically building apps on on something like Aztec or a, a ZK? EVM? So I I think the the developer experience would be pretty good. So I don't think like anyone who's familiar with Solidity kind of has the basics of well, have most of what they need to know to to write a noir app. So I mean the semantics will be the same. So you have like storage variables, you have kind of functions that kind of really operate over those storage variables and variables and that's kind of like all a solidity contract really is mm. at the end of the day um you can do that on noir pretty simply i mean it's like in solidity like it, it kind of has a uh, what do you call it like a, a nice little skill curve mm. where you go from just writing basic solidity what are they erc20 forks uniswap forks whatever and you go into like building something like seaport where you do it all as efficiently as possible or you start writing half. The arc will be quite similar, where it's you can write pretty like you can do ninety percent, ninety nine percent of what you need to do just with like standard noir, and it will write like a normal contract. And the the paradigms are pretty much the same as Solidity. And then if you want to like go crazy optimizing, there's there's room for you to do that. So I wonder. So it's basically just the same opcodes, just with some extra stuff like that shielding of private and public yeah so even even that shielding thing isn't even like expressly like it's not like there's an opcode to shield it's like you can just create commitments or you can create public state or you can like have storage state if you know what i mean like you can just create utxos you can create whatever you need so you can you can do whatever you want in those it doesn't have to particularly be shielding unshielding and all those kind of things it can be whatever you want just you can use whichever storage paradigm fits fits the job the best oh okay so there's different Okay, so is there like a public and private storage kind of thing? Okay, so in, let's say in one byte. Okay, I think this relates back to what we initially said, but to do with the public and private. So these are two different opcodes, right? Public and private storage. So if I have a private, completely private thing, mm -hmm. but I have one public storage, will it show everything that's private? So yeah, that's something you want to be careful about. It won't show everything that's private, but... Let's say in one transaction, you're doing a load of private things in one contract. And then at the end of your transaction, you're doing something to a public storage variable. Like, as I said beforehand, if you have like the, the EVM and you update two pieces of state in one transaction, you kind of reveal exactly what you've been doing. Mm. You just want to design such that you're thinking about that. So if we did like a private initially, had all this kind of filler code and then a public at the end, you wouldn't be able to see the private would you? you you wouldn't see what happened in the private but i mean if there's only 10 code paths that get you to that public function you know which is going to be one of those paths that were taken so you kind of want to set it up so it's like a a setup function into a public one i guess 
So I'll set up private into a public, like separate yeah. transactions. Like that, yeah. And I guess you can I think of contracts mm-hmm. as kind of like modules instead. So it's like bytecode or functions instead of like a whole contract. Is that right? So why is, uh, I guess that's done for, I guess, the private and public modularity, right? Like, why isn't it all in one single source code? So, yeah, so that's kind of, if you want to be able to have some functions that you keep to, like, that are private, mm-hmm. like, let's say, for this use case, I'm a bank, and I want to settle something on Aztec, but I don't really want to show my banking competitors, like, what I'm doing. If I publish, like, if my source code had bytecode for everything, um, if my contract stored by code for all of the private transactions as well, then they'd be able to see exactly what I'm doing. Mm. But if you want to keep it private, you also need to keep like what functions are being executed private and like what those functions actually do. Got you. In the use case where like you're a private kind of mini loan, like, like I don't know, a private bank or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can see this being happened. This the private, completely private, I guess, functions being used for something like a hospital or anything with sensitive data. Yeah, exactly. Stuff like that. Got you. That's that's who it's useful for. So, like, if you, the reason I think Aztec's so powerful in general is if you look at like what public blockchains give you, they give you kind of tr- some element of trustlessness. Um, so you can execute whatever you want and kind of know that it will get executed. What Aztec gives you on top of that is like all of those guarantees except you don't need to worry about leaking information to everyone so you get all of the coordination like guarantee like all of the coordination benefits of blockchains along with also being able to know that like i have a private life Mm -hmm. like if i want to interact exactly the the instance you were giving like if i want to interact with my hospital or whatever you can do that privately like if you think of all these people talking about like i want to buy coffee with ethereum in the future yeah like think of if every time you bought a coffee like everyone could see that that was happening like the amount of analytics that could be done on you yeah like everyone knows what time of day you're in a coffee shop and everyone knows like when you leave your house oh yeah like it's just not acceptable yeah yeah for sure yeah that perspective is is kind of clear why something like this needs to exist mm-hmm yeah um, or even why not not even needs to exist just like look at it from like a product perspective it's like something people clearly want yeah need i, I don't think anybody wants to get traced to that degree yeah so but if you think of the reality that like a public blockchain gives like it gives you all these great properties everyone talks about mm-hmm. but like nobody kind of well i think people are smart enough to know that you get everything dystopian as well and that like you know the the whole utopia that crypto is meant to provide isn't really a utopia at all. It's like a really great experiment that's kind of sparked this though. And now I think ZK is probably the thing that everybody imagined it would, like the original kind of a blockchain should be. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Just just like taking, looking at it like quite holistically from, from my back, if you look at like what a blockchain does, it verifies like every single node verifies everything that happened and like executes every single line of every single program. Like that itself is just ridiculous. Like you should just like it should just be checking proofs in the first place. Mm. Like why does it ever have to execute everything again? Like, I wonder if there's way to this is probably like not true, but I wonder if there's any way of I guess like reversing proofs or like saying malicious ones that like don't match but i guess that's like a protocol so yeah no there's there's absolutely ways to do that so there's like this whole area of like 
you can have soundness errors in your proving systems. You can have like non-perfect zero knowledge where or like not zero knowledge at all. So if you look at like most in production Stark systems, like don't have zero knowledge. So you can, you can clearly, it leaks information about what was executed in, in the proof. So that's like a, like a protocol, like the core protocol kind of security yeah. error, not really. It's not even a, yeah, it could be a core protocol security error. Like if there is a soundness error in any proving system, it's not great. And is there any, like, do people have to write their own proving systems or is it just getting sent to, like, you know, the mempool and then that does it all for them? And are, are all these as, like, essential to kind of getting into building, I guess, dApps on Aztec no, as well? No, absolutely not. No. There, if you want to, like, if you want to dive, into... dive into ZK, do that. If you want to write apps on Aztec, like, you just need to learn more. If you can write Solidity, like, you're 99% of the way there. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So hopefully people start uh, trying it out. Oh, hell yeah. Um, and is there a testnet people can use right now as well? Or still in development? So no testnet right now. We're aiming to have a local devnet by the end of Q3, so very soon. That means like you can run a Docker container and deploy Noir apps to it and like send transactions. Um, so it's basically just like an app with like a testnet with no consensus, um, but you just run it on your computer. Like you can run a local node, like something like Anvil, essentially. Yep. and write tests for contracts and stuff. Mm -hmm. That'll be coming pretty soon. Um, but that'll be like alpha, alpha version. So expect yeah, yeah. a lot of changes. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like loads. Um, but if you want to get dug into it, like send me a DM on Twitter. It's Maria Zero or on Discord or wherever. Um, and yeah. we'll walk you through it. And cool. uh, yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the tooling evolves as well for ZKVMs. There's so many opportunities, you know, start of a new kind of like field and arrow in the blockchain yeah. space. So a lot of uh, first mover advantages for different kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I've liked nice a lot. Job, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to be super interested from this talk as well, uh, especially yeah, talking about MEV, <laughs> the kind of the buzzword. Um, but it is an interesting area, and I think it's going to be very fun to kind of play around in this in this space. Um, yeah, if I have a nerd snipes you whatsoever, apply for a job. <laughs> <laughs> We're hiring. We're hiring. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, man, thank you so much for coming on, and we'll definitely chat soon. Uh, on when yeah, the launch is and how the space kind of evolves. Yeah. Cool. All right. Take care, everyone. See you guys.